Thank you, that was beautiful. Julia is here, for those of you with children who would like to meet her back there, and she'll give you the Bible bags. For the rest of us, let's take our New Testaments and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, one of the epistles of Paul. You might recognize that uh, we have a kind of uh, confluence of holidays this week. Today is the last day of the Christian year, which is Christ the King Sunday. It happens because it's the Sunday that is just before Thanksgiving. It's the Sunday where we're all celebrating Thanksgiving. This Thanksgiving day on, the th on Thursday is actually the same day as the beginning of the Festival of Lights, which we today call Hanukkah. And the Festival of Lights, you remember that Jesus was in the temple, and he says, as he looks at these great lights, that I am the light of the world that has come to stop the darkness. And so we have this great kind of coming together of holidays today. And I hope that uh, you'll enjoy this entire week and all that it means as we remember that, that Jesus brings light into the darkness. So on this Christ the King Sunday, as we complete the Christian year, next Sunday we'll be have Advent. As I told you last week, we're going to have a contemplative service. It's going to be a time where often as we move into the hecticness of the holidays, we're going to have a quietness of the holy days. And we're going to begin the Christmas season in quietness before God as we meditate what it means to wait for God. And so next week we'll come together in a, in a special time of service. But today as we end uh, the Christian year, we're looking at the Christological hymn in Colossians. Scholars explain that the last six verses of the text that we're about to read is one of the most succinct descriptions of who Jesus Christ is in all of scripture. Uh, the scholars think that it may in fact have been a hymn that the early church sang in their acts of worship. And so perhaps Paul is simply writing it down while he is in prison in Rome as he is thinking about this great hymn that they've been singing in their worship time together. It begins with a statement that is fascinating in all kinds of ways. He says that the sun is the image of the invisible God. Now, if you're like me, as soon as I see that word, most of us think that, well, then Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible cre creator. And so when we look at Jesus, we know what God looks like. But if that is true, if that's what Paul means by this phrase, then why didn't he describe him? Why doesn't any of the uh, New Testament, either especially gospel writers who are telling the story of Jesus, why don't they even tell us how tall he was? What color of eyes he had? What, what was the color of his skin, his hair? Was he dark like most of the, the Jewish people would have been of that day? Does he look like the other descendants of Abraham? Or is he somehow more unique? Is he kind of a universal humanity? In the void of any biblical description, so we have no a revealed description of Jesus Christ. Artists, both ancient and modern, have tried to give us a visual representation of Jesus. The most common in the Western world is Solomon's Head of Christ, but it was only painted 90 years ago. While the oldest surviving icon in the world is 1,400 years before Solomon's Head, it was, it was painted in the 6th century. It now stands in the monastery of Mount Sinai. But that is still 500 years after Jesus lived. 
In 2001, there was an attempt by the modern world to take our modern skills of forensic anthropology and take kind of the average skull of what it would be the average person who lived in the average land of Israel. And Richard Neve came up with this creature as a created uh, image of God. It's been highly criticized for its lack of dignity, its lack of, of majesty. But other authors look at it and they suggest that, well, Jesus must have been common looking because why did Judas have to come up and show which one of these average looking people was in fact Jesus when he was arrested that night. But I find the most intriguing of all the attempts to create a visible image of the Son of God to be the work done around the Shroud of Turin. There's lots of debate still as to whether that is actual. There's, it's uh, uh, a very fascinating kind of study. But the Shroud of Turin claims to be the burial cloth of Christ laid over him and waiting for uh, the final uh, time after the Sabbath was over when the ladies were coming and they were going to anoint his body with spices and prepare it as it would have been prepared. Here an author has taken the image on the cloth and has drawn what he thinks is a good representation of the instruction given to us by the, the impression that's on the cloth. What is even more fascinating to me is the resemblance of this oldest icon that we have of Jesus superimposed by the image on the shroud. Now all of this is very interesting, but is that what Paul meant when he said that he was the image of the invisible God? Was Jesus sent so we would recognize God face to face when we saw him? Is that the point of this? I think we'll know who God is when we get there. I don't think we need a, a visual skin representation. Or is Paul saying something far deeper than the skin? Perhaps at the level of the incarnation of the Son of God into the man Jesus of Nazareth. And if so, if he's saying something far deeper than just a visual representation, then what is it he's saying? And what do we need to understand about Jesus Christ in order to understand even what it means to follow him as the one who gives us life, who gives light in the darkness? Well, that's what we want to explore today. So we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1, and he's writing of church to the church, of course, to the church in Colossae, which is in the southern part of now what is modern Turkey, as he's in prison in Rome. Chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, no growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then he begins the great Christological hymn. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now keep that open before you and let us pray. Father, when writings are so profound that we recognize they require a, a doctoral dissertation to even begin to understand, we're humbled before them. We recognize that this time we're together for this moment in the sanctuary is not even a beginning time to understand who Jesus is and what it meant for him to come. But it's a lifetime journey of, of personal experience and mental understanding and social acceptance and all the things that it means for him to have come. So be with us today and uh, as we're just taking a next step on each of our individual journeys and our corporate uh, journey together. And of course, we give you the praise. Amen. Now, in the verses leading up to this hymn, Paul has explained to us what it is that Jesus' coming is meant to do within our lives, the purpose of his coming. He wants us, to, first of all, to be filled with the knowledge of God's will, all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit can give us, so that we might then live a life that is worthy of the Lord and please him in every way in which we live uh, this life so that we may, by bearing fruit in every good work, grow in this knowledge of God. And the knowledge is both personal experience of God and mental understanding of God. And by being strengthened with all power by God's glorious might, so that we might have great endurance and patience. And of course, then fitting for this Thanksgiving Sunday, he wants us to choose to give joyful thanks to the Lord. Thanks to the Father as we share in the inheritance. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, and brought us into the kingdom of his Son, the one he loves, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. So Christ the King has entered his kingdom, and he has brought the light of the world to bear on your and my darkness so that we might live in this kingdom. Now that purpose is clear, and you will notice that at its core, at its foundation, he wants us to have knowledge, wisdom, which is the application of God's truth to the way we live each day, understanding that the Spirit gives through the incarnation of the Son of God in visible form. Now that awareness that the Son is a visible form and that in him we could have life is something that you and I want to explore today. So he's the, he's the visible form of the invisible world. Things in heaven are now visible because the creator entered creation. He came in flesh and blood 
so that flesh and blood eyes, flesh and blood ears could see and could hear and could understand what we could not have understood had he not come into our world. The one who we could only imagine has now become imaged. And so imagination now has been focused on an image of the revealed God. But what is this that has become imaged? If God's imagination created the heavens and the earth, then why can't we just look at the heavens and the earth, at nature itself, and understand who God is and his purpose and his life? Isn't the created world, in fact, an image of God? Well, theologians answer that question by saying yes and no. Yes, nature can give us what is called natural revelation. Sometimes it's called general revelation because it's revealed to all people everywhere. Paul explains in his letter to Rome that we can know a few things about God by looking at nature. We can know, for example, his power, the tremendous power that it took to create the universe. The more we understand, the more science explores the vastness and the power that it took to create the universe, we know that there is one that has the power to do that. So we can know his vast power, but we can also know that God is not a part of creation. He's not a part of this nature. He has a divine nature. He transcends, he's outside. He was beginning, he began all of this. And so we know that he's not a part of nature, he has a divine nature. But what has been easy for human beings to do is in fact to give praise and glory to the creation rather than the creator and to in fact substitute the glory that is meant for the immortal, invisible creator because he alone is the one that is worthy of praise. All of this is simply the result of who he is. His great power, his divine nature has created this nature and all that is visible, all that we experience in it. And so we begin to worship human beings and worship nature, making creatures and idols out of birds and animals and reptiles if we do not, in fact, worship God. Now, it's not just the ancient religions that do that or, or the more primitive religions, as the uh, anthropology of religion calls it. It is also the new religions, the new age religions, the life force religions that call this life force that permeates all of creation, the Gaia force, as being the divine. And there's nothing beyond nature itself. And so we begin to worship nature. So yes, we can, we can know the divine power and the divine nature of God. But without God becoming visible, without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, then we are trapped by our thoughts of what the creator God must be like because it's not revealed to us what the beginning one is like who created all of this. And so becoming flesh and blood, incarnate in the flesh, incarnation, is what God needed to do so that we could understand the love of God. Now, if you look just at nature, you would not know that the creator God of nature loves us or that you uniquely are important to God. For within nature itself, you would not get that message. And so, no, we cannot imagine what, that the creator loves us so much that 
he would become a part of us and set us free from the power of death, the fallenness of nature itself, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us, without his special revelation. We're left only with worshiping the creature rather than the creator. But when God reveals to us this great love that he has for us and that nature itself has a purpose and that we're to take care of nature, whether we do it through the reforestation efforts or not using up the forests or whatever we do with the temperature and on and on that we are responsible to do as we take over and care for God's creation, the first and, and second commandments of God to us is to be fruitful and multiply and to care for the creation that he's given us. But when God reveals the invisible through the visible word, and that, that visible word is two forms of special revelation. The Bible is an inspired human being who is given truth that he could not have known had God not thought through him and expressed it to us. And so the Bible is the word given to us, and we learn the eternal realm from that. But Jesus himself is also the word the Logos, the one who came to communicate to us who God is and what he uh, wants to be in our lives and the deep love that he has for us, that he's willing to come and to show us life and to show it eternally. And so when we have special revelation, then we're able to, in fact, worship the creator and the savior, the ever-present God, the Emmanuel, the one who is with us, because now we have a completion of revelation from both general to special. So that is where the, the, the Christological hymn expresses it in such clear terms. He is supreme in everything. Now the word we translate supreme is poteo, and it means first. It comes from the word protos, and it can mean before, best, of first importance, foremost, the first of all things. So Jesus is proteo in four ways. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. They continue to exist because God is holding our universe together. He is the head of the church, not any human being, not any organization, not an institution. It is Jesus Christ who has brought us together as the body of Christ today and he's our head. He is the firstborn from among the dead, the first resurrected one. And that is very different, of course, from Lazarus and others who were resuscitated back into a life that they didn't have to die. Jesus died and entered into the life that we are all uh, going to experience. He's the firstborn of the resurrected of the dead. He's the proteo. Now that means that not only is he our creator and sustainer, the giver of life and eternal life, but he's the leader of every day and of our group together, the Church of Jesus Christ. He is in charge, but he also charges into the future for us. He's the leader who experiences it before us so that we can know where we're going without fear, for we can know that life beyond life is the reality. He shows us the way by the example of his own life as he creates for us a way, the way of salvation. And then Paul says that the primary ministry of this fullness of God, invisible human flesh, is to reconcile to himself all things, everything that's gotten broken, 
everything that is at war within us, between us, in our relationship with our Creator, so that peace is possible only because Jesus himself came and he paid what is necessary to give us peace such that all things are made right through his blood on the cross. Now we cannot begin to imagine the image of the creator God on the excruciating cross of humanity. That is not something that we would even begin to understand, that a love of the Creator would be so profound that He would take upon Himself whatever brokenness happened because He gave us freedom to choose. And He makes it possible for us to freely choose to receive that tremendous cure to the brokenness and the disease of humanity. And we could not even begin to imagine the cross but he came and we can now visibly image the love of God and how far he will go to express uh, that love to us. And we can then experience peace. It's a peace that passes understanding because it's not based on some temporary experience of this world. It's a peace that comes only from what God has done. And it is given to us freely through grace. And we don't deserve it. All we have to do is receive it, respond to him with love in return, and allow that love relationship to be the reality of our life. So to say that Jesus came so that we could know what he looks like is such a shallow understanding of the verse as to almost be embarrassing that we think we, we need to know that. We humans like to place God in a box and describe God and understand God and define God and then put him up on a shelf and when we want to talk about God we pull him down and he's an intellectual discussion or some thing that we control by our categories and our amusement and understanding but that's not what God allows for us in the person of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ came so that we might have wisdom that we might have knowledge that we might have understanding. And that understanding and wisdom and knowledge doesn't just end with understanding who he is. Then we understand who we are and who one another is. And it changes everything about everything that we do in this life. This is such a temporary experience of our eternal existence. So this morning as you give thanks to God for what he's done, Start by really thinking who he really is, not the categories that you've put him in, but who he really is as he revealed himself to us and what it took for him to bring peace. Let's spend time with him.